Hello, family. Um, of course, it's Saturday right now, the time of the recording of this message. I'm in my office, and um, so technically it's April 4th, and um, this message is being recorded for April the 5th at noon and Palm Sunday. So I've uh, got a few announcements that I want to make uh, in the beginning of our time together and get uh, kind of get our schedule for the week. It's kind of a busy week. I'm I'm speaking about seven times over the next seven days, and so that's a lot more preaching than um, I'm used to doing, but we're staying busy, and that's a good thing. Don't forget that Monday through Thursday, uh, live at 8 a.m., Notes from the Pastor's Desk, we'll continue that. Monday night at 6 o'clock, uh, we will continue with the book of Galatians, and it's going to be Lesson 2. Wednesday night, don't forget to tune in to Heights Foursquare Church in Yakima, Washington, uh, at 6 o'clock for worship service with their uh, worship leader, Moses, and his wife. Uh, Friday at 6 p.m., we'll have our Good Friday service. It's just going to be a few minutes together. Uh, you need to get ready to have communion with us and um, get some implements together for um, uh, emblems of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't forget, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, 12 noon, alert the media. I'm going to break out a tie. So uh, it's going to be a special day, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, the message that God's already in the process of giving us for the Easter Sunday service. So we're excited about that. So let's have a word of prayer together. Father, in Jesus' name, I want to thank you once again for this time you've given us to be together. Thank you for helping us to get over the, the oddities of uh, how it feels to, to speak to a group I can't see. But Father, in faith, in the name of Jesus Christ, I know people are listening. I know that they're going to be touched by the word that's given today because you've prepared the soil of our hearts. You've prepared the word that we're going to give. And we thank you, Father, for our time together today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19. We titled this message, The Weeping King. Luke chapter 19. We'll begin reading in verse 28. Uh, and read through 44, and then we'll jump down to Luke chapter 20 and read verses 9 through 19. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Uh, this is a story about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and at this time, there was something about entering the city that made him weep. And there are two accounts of Jesus Christ that we're going to focus on today. He wept when he entered Jerusalem over the spiritual condition of that city. And we'll, we'll cover that account in Luke chapter 19, um, beginning with verse 28 here in a minute. I'm stalling to give you time to, to get your Bible and, and get open and get there to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. The other account, uh, we're just going to say a few words about it. It was just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it involves the shortest passage of Scripture in the Bible. It just says, Jesus wept. And we're going to give a reference to that. And we're going to talk about the link between that time that he wept and I believe the time that he weeps in this passage of Scripture. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. 
untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then we go to Luke chapter 20, and we pick up at verse 9 through 19. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Just this morning as I was going over these notes and, and skimming through some, some uh, materials that I had, I came across an article that was written by a man named John Bloom, and he's a staff writer with the ministry Desiring God. John Piper's ministry, and he wrote some notes about what he thought that Jesus might have been weeping over in the story uh, when he just just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that's it's just a few paragraphs, and I want to share it with you, and certainly give credit to uh, to the writer for it, um, John Bloom. The shortest version in the Bible is John 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. But for all its grammatical simplicity, it's packed with unfathomable complexity. Jesus wept after speaking with Lazarus' grieving sisters, Martha and Mary. 
and seeing all the mourners. That seems natural enough, except that Jesus had come to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that in a, short, in a few short minutes, all this weeping would turn to astonished joy, and then tearful laughter, and then worship. So one would think that Jesus would be a confident, joyful, calm in that storm of sorrow, but he was greatly troubled, it says in John eleven thirty three, and he wept. Why? First thought, one, compassion for suffering. One reason is simply the deep compassion that Jesus felt for those who were suffering. It is true that, that Jesus let Lazarus die. He delayed coming and he did not speak healing from a distance like he did for the centurion's servant. His reasons were good and merciful and glorious. But this did not mean Jesus took the suffering to cause lightly. In Lamentations 3, verse 33, it says, For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Even though Jesus always chooses what will ultimately bring his Father the most glory, and sometimes, as in Lazarus' case, it requires affliction and grief. He does not take delight in the affliction of grief itself. No, Jesus is sympathetic. And as the image of the invisible God, in Jesus, at the tomb of Lazarus, we get a glimpse of how the Father feels over the affliction and grief his children experience. Point number two, the calamity of sin. Jesus' tears give us a glimpse of how the Father feels over the grief of his children. Jesus also wept over the calamity of sin. As God the Son, who had come into the world to destroy the devil's works, Jesus was about to deliver death, its death blow. But sin grieves God deeply, and so do the wages of sin, death. And ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, he had endured sin's horrific destruction. Death had consumed almost every human being he had created, all except Elijah and Enoch. It had taken Lazarus, and it would take him again before it was all over. Tears of anger and longing were mixed with Jesus' tears of grief. Third point from John, the writer of this article, the cost of redemption. A third reason for weeping was the cost that he was about to pay to purchase not only Lazarus' short-term resurrection, but his everlasting life. The cross was just days away, and no one really knew the inner distress Jesus was experiencing. Lazarus' resurrection would look and be experienced by Lazarus and everyone else as a gift of grace. But oh, it was not free. Jesus was going to die a horrific death to purchase it. And the most horrific part was not the crucifixion. As unimaginable as that alone would have been, he was dreading his father's wrath. Jesus, who had never known sin, was about to become Lazarus' sin and the sin of all who had or would believe in him so that in him they would all become the righteousness of God. He was looking to the joy that was set before him, but the reality of what lay between was weighing heavily. And the last point that John makes is, point four, the cause of his own death. A fourth possible reason for Jesus' tears was that he knew that raising Lazarus would actually cause the religious leaders to finally take action, put him to death. In this account, most of us probably marvel at Jesus' incredible trust that his Father would answer him. We have such little faith. If Jesus had any struggle that day, it would not have been whether his Father would answer, but what would result when his Father answered. Calling Lazarus out of the tomb would have taken a different kind of resolve for Jesus than we might have imagined. 
giving Lazarus life was sealing his own death. Giving Lazarus life sealed Jesus' own death. Just these few reasons for Jesus weeping at Lazarus' tomb gives us a glimpse into how God views our suffering and death. His reasons for not sparing us these things are righteous and glorious, but in them he is full of compassion. He hates the calamity sin brings, and he himself has suffered more than we will ever know in order to pay the full cost of our eternal redemption. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning, and when that morning comes, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. Running back up to the top of this article, you, you can look it up later and enjoy it again. John Bloom, the staff writer for the ministry Desiring God, which is um, Brother John Piper's ministry that God has laid on his heart and life. I want to start out today with moving to the story now in, in Luke chapter 19. Uh, we're going to share with you again the passages of scriptures that we've already read and we're going to uh, to bring some points out that I believe will help clarify what we're getting at. Some of the same things that made Jesus weep that we've already read about in that article, uh, which I got a hold of after I, I did the notes for this sermon, are some of the same reasons why Jesus wept entering into the city of Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem, point number one, Christ demonstrates his authority. In Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 34 again, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt its owner said to them why are you untying the colt and they said the lord has need of it you know there are two sub points under point number one here and i'm calling them a and b the easy to follow a we get a glimpse of the omniscience of jesus christ he knows everything he's all-knowing right look look at luke chapter 19 verse 30 through 34 saying go into the village in front of you where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. It doesn't say anything else about any, any more questions. It's over. Jesus has need of it. And, and Jesus stated to his disciples where they would find the colt. And if anyone asks you why you're untying the colt, just tell him I have need of it. And, uh, and it says in verse 32, So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them, because he knows everything, right? And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now, I think this is a powerful part B under one. Omnipotence. Jesus Christ is all-powerful. In Luke chapter 19, verses 35 and 36, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, it's kind of an amazing statement here. Jesus, <clears throat> biblical historians, you can find it in your own Bible, 
many of the uh, Bible translations that are out there, they call this the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And, and even though on this visit to Jerusalem, he was going to give his life uh, for, for the church. And, uh, <clears throat> but they still refer to it as a triumphant entry because it was a victory for our lives for eternity. Point number two, Christ authenticates his identity. In Luke chapter 19, verses 35 through 38, it reads like this. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, so you, you might ask, well, Pastor Dennis, how do you get Christ authenticates his identity? Watch this with me. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. I'm going to give you a second to get there. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Old Testament verse of Scripture. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 reads like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, listen to this very carefully. This is only one of over a hundred prophecies about the first coming of Christ. All of which, every single solitary one of them, it wasn't hit and miss, there's over a hundred prophecies that you find in the Old Testament about the first coming of Christ, all of which were fulfilled. A, first of all, literally, not figuratively. Just exactly what the Word of God says in the Old Testament about Jesus coming were fulfilled. There were no hit and no miss and and many times in the New Testament you say, as it was prophesied, and then they would say something that happened about Jesus. Something that unfolded that proved that what they said in the Old Testament was true and real. It wasn't figurative. It was literal. And B, all of which were fulfilled literally and B, precisely. Right on time. Just as predicted. It wasn't off to the right or the left or a day late or a day early or a minute late or a minute early. It unfolded over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Zechariah uh, chapter 9 verse 9 is just one. And boom, right here in Luke chapter 19, you see it unfold just exactly the way the Word of God said it would. So, two, Christ authenticated his identity by literally and precisely fulfilling all prophecy that pertain to him. Third point, Christ presents himself in this passage of Scripture in humility. Christ presents himself in humility. In Luke chapter 19, verses 30 through 31, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now listen to me very carefully. This triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem just before his crucifixion. This is a kind of a, it, it strikes me as being almost a, a little funny 
in a way to say this, but um, I, I'm going to share it to you this way. Here you have Jesus Christ, the one who created the entire universe, but he's going to borrow a donkey. The one who created all things and owns all things needs a loner donkey. He needs a, uh, he borrows a colt, it says. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says, He is the image of the invisible, the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He created everything, right? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Folks, listen to me. The next time that Jesus Christ enters the city of Jerusalem, it will not be on a borrowed donkey. It's going to be on a horse. And he's going to enter that city as a uh, victor. Uh, he'll be wearing all of his armor. He will have the sword of righteousness with him. He is going to be decked out, and he is going to enter that city with all of the majesty of being the Son of God, all of the power, all of the authority. But on this occasion, he entered the city clothed in humility. He even borrowed a donkey to ride on. Now, let, let, me, let me say this, though. You know, one of the things I think in my heart and mind that authenticates the fact that, um, you know, what, what have we got so far here? We have three points. Christ demonstrates his authority, right? And then two, Christ authenticates his identity. And three, Christ presents himself in humility and he rides into the city on this donkey that he borrowed, right? He has clothed himself in humility. He, he doesn't present himself as the, as the son of God or militarily, militarily speaking. And he doesn't come in an overwhelming and powerful way. As a matter of fact, the children of Israel would have been much more accepting of him at that time if he had. Because in the history of Israel, as an army, whenever they were right with God, there was no military force in the world that could withstand them. So Jesus was coming as the antithesis of this militaristic leader, clothed in humility, and, um, and, and it's a picture that the, the children of Israel did not want to receive. And here's the point I'm trying to get at. Take, a, a, I don't care if it's a donkey, I don't care if it's a mule, I don't care if it's a horse, I don't care if it's a colt, I don't care what kind of four-legged beast that you can ride on, have you ever seen anyone that could get on one of those animals before they were broken, before they were trained, and just be able to ride it? But Jesus was able to do that. Most four-legged animals don't take human beings instantly on their back and walk with them. They try to throw them off. They try to get rid of them. But for Jesus... As the Son of God, getting on this colt was natural. He gave him no problem. Point number three, Christ weeps over his people. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. For many of the same reasons that the writer of that article talked about Jesus weeping before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Because of what was about to take place. Luke 19, 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. A subpoint under this, part, point three is A, the kind of tears that he cried. When you look at the original rendering of scripture here, you understand that Jesus Christ is deeply disturbed. Deeply disturbed. Uh, and, and, this is, and this is a part of the manifestation of his tears. In Matthew 37, verse 37, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So, in this point under Christ weeps over his people, a, the types of tears, he was deeply disturbed, and B, his words. He gives a detailed description of the judgment over them. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And it, and it is part of what brought on judgment on the city where he talks about not one stone would be left upon another because an army would come and surround them and would take the city of Jerusalem over. Last point, point four, Christ illustrates missed opportunity. In Luke chapter 20, again reading in verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, and they also beat and treated him shamefully. And he sent them away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Here's where the judgment part comes. And he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is that, or is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I know that the passages are that the message that we've given there are mostly passages of scripture, but they're the best preachers of all, the scriptures, the word of God. But in conclusion, I got three takeaways that I've I've got from reading these passages of scripture, some of which we read several times today. The conclusion, the three takeaways go like this. Number one, what we've seen is a lesson. A lesson. The literal fulfillment of events surrounding the first coming of Christ provide a firm platform for understanding the prophetic statements about his second coming as literal. Good point. A lesson. 
if all of the scriptures in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ, his first coming, were literally, not figuratively, fulfilled by Christ. And it was all on time. It was never late. It was when the word of God said it was going to happen. If that was accurate, then can we not place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ that all of the prophetic scriptures in the word of God that have to do with his second coming will also be fulfilled literally and on time. The second thing we get in our takeaways, first was a lesson. Number two is a picture. What a humble Savior. He never forces his way into our lives. Um, the Son of God entered the city of Jerusalem in the most humble way, and man, he worked at it. I mean, he's the Son of God. He could have just said a word, and the angels of heaven, the armies of heaven, could have come against that city, and they could have stopped those people from crucifying him. But he kept his mouth shut, went on trial, did not defend himself, and died on the cross for our sins. That's humility. That's true humility. What a picture. And number three, first there was a lesson, then there was a picture, and then there was a warning. And, and I'm going to put this as simply and succinctly as I can. People who reject Christ are living in a window of time that is closing. You know, I, I remember studying as a child. I, I love to study history as a child. I'm still a big, a big student of history even now, uh, how things unfolded in the past in this world. And one of, the, one of the periods of time that I used to love to study that was intriguing to me was the Civil War. And to this day, I don't really know why. I mean, I just thought it was an interesting subject. But one day I got an opportunity to look at it from the Christian's point of view. In the Civil War, many people believed with all of their hearts that they were living in the last days and that Jesus Christ would soon return because of everything that was unfolding with the Civil War in this country. Now, the truth of the matter is there wasn't nearly the number of signs taking place then that are taking place now. But I, I will tell you that it could be hundreds of years, it could be thousands of years. You know, God's going to look at Christ. And, you know, we talked about Jesus Christ knowing everything earlier, but the only thing he doesn't know is when he's going to return. Because he said, when asked by his disciples, that is given to the Father to know. Only God knows. And Jesus Christ will come back when God tells him to. And that's fine with me, not that it needs my approval. But the Word of God lays out all types of descriptions of what it will be like in the last days. And I've never, I've never seen throughout history and in my lifetime leading up to now more of the signs being fulfilled so that you must hear the words I'm speaking to you today in the close of our time together. There has been so much fulfilled that I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ could return at any time now. And everyone needs to pay attention to that message because people who reject Christ are living in a window of time that is closing. I, I say that with all of the confidence that the Holy Spirit will give me. People who reject Christ are living in a window of time that is closing. Now, I reiterate to you once again, I, 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 I'm looking forward to the day that we're together again in church services. And you know me, when I'm preaching, I like to look people in the eye. And I like to talk to people. And I like to preach the Word of God. And I like to teach the Word of God to people. 
we're enduring what we're going through right now, and it's working. We're getting the message out there, and we're preaching to a lot of people. And it's like we said earlier, more gospels being preached out there right now than ever in the history of mankind. Uh, I just saw a, a little clip uh, the other day, just a few days ago, there were Christians on staff at the White House that had gathered in a room, and they were singing, What a Wonderful Name It Is, the Name of Jesus. And man, I'm going to tell you, the acoustics in the White House are fantastic. But there was a group of Christians that work in the White House, and they're in a circle, and they're singing to uh, Jesus Christ about what a wonderful name uh, it is, right? And could you have thought that might happen a few weeks ago, a few months ago? I don't really know. Maybe it happened, and we just didn't hear about it. But more people are calling upon the name of Jesus today and crying out to God than, in a, than we've heard or seen in a long, long time. Um, it's a terrible tragedy on the one hand, but on the other hand, we're hearing more people call out to God than we have in a long, long time. So I believe that, that, that our prayers that God will kill this virus, I believe they're working. I'm praying for those who are, are sick. I'm praying for those that are on the front lines, uh, our nurses, our doctors, our EMS personnel, our first line responders to emergencies out there that are placing themselves in harm's way. And I'm asking God to protect them and to watch over them. But I am so grateful for the number of people that are calling out to God for help. And um, people who reject Christ are living in the window of time that is closing. Even this that we're going through right now, it's not gonna last forever. And if God's drawn on your heartstrings, um, I just wanna pray with you today in closing and our time uh, together today and, uh, and, and let's talk to God about this. Father, in Jesus' name, this last takeaway in this sermon, people who reject Christ are living in a window of time that is closing. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would continue to knock on the doors of the hearts of the people of this country, of the people of this world. I don't think I've ever seen a catastrophe like this that literally has infected the entire world. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name that by the power of your Spirit, you would use this period of time to draw people closer to you, that you would reveal yourself in special ways, and that many would come to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their lives as a result of what we're going through right now. Father, lead us, guide us, direct us, comfort us, protect us, watch over us. Father, I'm even asking that for your children. And and I just pray in Jesus' name that you would kill this virus. I pray that you would strengthen your children to the point in your word and in the power and the presence of your spirit that this germ touches your children, that it dies, Father, that we become a, a, a remedy, Father, for this illness. In Christ's name we pray that supernaturally you would touch us and prepare us and strengthen us. In Christ's name we pray. And Father, more importantly, May more people come to know you as Lord and Savior of their lives than ever in the history of this world for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, happy Palm Sunday. God bless you. Appreciate you tuning in with us. And uh, we look forward to uh, tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. to bring a passage of scripture and a word of prayer and a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. Amen. God bless. Bye.